Now we're going to bring you a piece from our archives about a compelling piece of history in America about our higher education and where the money came from. We focus on the Ivy League with the author who wrote about the history of the Ivy League colleges, Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder, who's a professor of history at MIT and the author of the book, Ebony and Ivy, The Secret History of How Slavery Helped Build America's Elite Colleges. And with the upcoming holiday, we hope this sheds some light on part of our lesson on history, but critical history. Enjoy the conversation. That's Junior Kimbrough, Meet Me in the City. Now we turn our attention to a conversation we had last month, but uh, he's in town, so we wanted to pick up where we left off and uh, talk a bit about where we were then. We're joined in the studio here by Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder. He's the author of this incredible new book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of American Universities. He's a professor of history at MIT, and his previous books include uh, A Covenant with Color and In the Company of Black Men. Craig Stephen Wilder, good to have you in the studio. Welcome. Good to meet you, man. Thank you. I'm Pleasure. glad to be here. Pleasure. Uh, I, let's backtrack a minute. I mean, I was thinking about what we talked about and how we ended our conversation in December. I think about December 14th when we talked by phone. And um, uh, again, I, I, I just harken back to sort of the beginnings of the book uh, when you describe how um, the slave trade and the slave uh, ship, the Divine, was it? Yeah. 1636? Desire. Desire, excuse me, Desire. Desire. 1638. Uh, uh, 1638, I'm sorry. I knew you had the date better than I. (laughs) (laughs) I remembered a few things. That's good. That's That's good. Um, uh, How that was connected to the founding of Harvard University that started in 1636. Uh, And it sort of is the underpinning of how the the North, the slave trade, the West Indies were all intertwined. And, you know, I think it's a a brilliant moment for really thinking about – um, how New England comes together, how the British colonies come together, and how these relationships between colonialism, the conquest of Native nations, the slave trade, and the academy ultimately actually get intertwined. They get braided. And so early in the research process, I was sort of looking at the you know the origins of Harvard. And what happens is the, the college is founded in 1636. Um, the Pequot War, breaks out the very next year. The Puritans are fighting against the um, Indians of southern Connecticut, and uh, much of this is driven by Puritan expansionism, by the rapid growth of the Puritan population and the quest for land. The Pequot defeated the war. It's actually often referred to as the Pequot Massacre. Um, The captives, mostly women and children, Pequot captives, are actually put on a ship named the Desire, and they're sent to be sold into the uh, Bermuda in the West Indies. The Desire returns in 1638, carrying various goods, commodities, including enslaved Africans. And that very year, um, Harvard, um, the primary instructor of Harvard, Nathaniel Eaton, um, has a man named the Moor, a black slave who's actually working for him on campus. He's the only instructor. He's basically the the you know president and uh, effectively the president and the professor right. of early Harvard, a rough institution <laughs> to say the least. But um, 
the more actually then becomes part of Harvard legend. Yeah, he sort of gets um, still. Yeah, yeah, he shows up in different places. You know, and even in there's some records of him. You know. um, the well-known Harvard historian Samuel Eliot Morrison, yeah. who recorded much of Harvard's history during his long career in the 20th century, wrote actually quite frequently about the Moore. He referenced him quite frequently. But what tends to happen, what tended to happen, um, when, especially at northern colleges, when historians confronted the presence of enslaved people on college campuses like the Moore, the tendency was to sort of treat them as fantastic, grotesque, flawed characters, um, drunkards, um, you know, immoral, and by doing that, erase the problem of the moral problem of their presence on campus. Um, and so, to the extent that they could be caricatured and lampooned, they didn't need to be explained. Um, and so, what happens with the Moore is what what I attempted to do with him is to do a bit more of explaining how and why he got there, and how his presence actually is a, um, I I think, just a wonderful way of understanding how the rise of Harvard, the rise of the academy in colonial British America, was intimately tied to both native conquest and the African slave trade. All of these things come together in that moment. And it's exactly what brings him to this early campus um, that's now Harvard. Um, and the Harvard that we think of today is not the one we should be thinking of in the 17th century. <laughs> they <laughs> bear very little resemblance to each other. But the growth of Harvard and yeah. the growth of Yale, the growth of what became Princeton, the growth of Penn, the growth of all these colleges mm-hmm. um, that you outline in the book, um, the exponential growth yeah. over yeah. those next 50 to 100 years were, were, was, f- were, was funded, founded, and because of both the enslavement of Native people but more importantly, yeah. this enslavement yeah. of, of African, yeah, I, Africans. I had a struggle as I was doing the research. It was 11, an 11-year project for me. Um, and I had a struggle as I was doing it to explain um, something that actually Samuel Johnson, Samuel Johnson, the Reverend Samuel Johnson was the president, the founding president of King's College, which is now Columbia in Manhattan. And at one point in time, he had a very bad relationship to his trustees, who were largely merchants um, and many of them slave traders. Um, and the relationship got... Um, increasingly sour, to a point where Johnson once wrote to his son and just referenced the stupidity of the trustees. The letter is actually still there in Columbia's archives. Um, it's one of those great moments for a historian when you sort of come across <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we actually, at uh, college faculty, would like to say that from time to time. <laughs> but uh, the, but you know, he says it. The stupid, but what he's talking about is actually they had these fantastic fundraising schemes they were sending people all over Europe. They were sending people to West Indies to raise money. And right out of the letter comes this line, what is the need for so much money? What's the need for so many tutors when we don't have any students? Right? And so they're raising money constantly, but in fact, there are no students. And it's that, it's that question that actually sort of um, forced me to rethink the early part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because in fact, actually, why did Harvard need so much money? Um, why did William and Mary in 1693, when it's founded, um, why was it looking for so much money in Europe and in the West Indies? Um, these are really quite small local colleges. Um, they're lucky if they have a building. Um, and er, a, a 20th century historian of higher education put it quite nicely. I'm going to paraphrase him. You know, if a colonial college had a building, then it didn't have a president. If it had a president, then it had no money. If it had money, it didn't have a building. Um, <laughs> it had right. a building and money. It didn't have trustees, and it had no students. These are all struggling institutions. They're tiny, 
and they're local. Um, and so what was the need for all this? And, and that's where I actually started to look at the relationship between the colleges and Native Americans, which is actually in some ways, in some ways explains why it was that the colleges worked so aggressively to tap into the wealth being created by the slave trade and slavery. Um, the college is an instrument in the colonial world. It's there to do specific kinds of work. And part of its real uh, challenge, part of its mission, is, the, um, is to help subdue Native nations and to bring them under the governance of so, European powers. So th- let me just very quickly talk about that. This is an important point. I, can you be, let's be more specific about how, uh, how you know, the, the early college system was part of the oppression of Native Americans. Yeah. Then I want to talk about the, the slave trade connection right. even more deeply. Sure. Um, in New England, in New France, Eastern Canada, the French colonies in Eastern Canada, New Spain, the vast um, Spanish colonies from the um, Caribbean, the, um, the Spanish Caribbean, Mexico south to Colombia and Peru. Um, in each of these regions, colleges were established almost immediately. The very first college in the Americas, um, 100 years before Harvard, in 1536, is established in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. It's still there. It's the autonomous university. It's the oldest college in the um, hemisphere. Um, and you know, in each place, for the Catholic priest in the Caribbean and in Mexico, for um, Puritans and Angli- Anglicans in the British colonies, and for Catholic French French Catholic priests in Eastern Canada, building a college was part of the structure for sending out missionaries into Native nations, um, bringing in Native youth in particular, um, training them in Orthodox Christianity, whatever the definition of the um, denomination was. Um, and then sending them back as ambassadors of the faith. Um, The college was an instrument for waging a kind of culture war um, against Native nations, and that that was part of their project. And and that's a, you know, sort of um, direct way of putting it. But in fact, actually, I think that's proven out by British history um, or in English history in the century before the English arrive in the Americas. Um, They do something very similar in Scotland and Ireland. They begin, in fact, funding. The mm-hmm. Crown begins funding actually quite handsomely um, colleges, professorships, universities in order to establish religious orthodoxy, extend the reach of the church, um, and bring people under the sway of the English government to make colonialism real in day-to-day practice. Hmm. That'd be interesting. If, if you could expand, I don't want to do that now because we have too much to talk about, but expand mm-hmm. that to, to um, extrapolate that out to look at uh, America today in terms of what our schools are doing right. with high-stakes testing and how that right. is tied in some similar ways to that same philosophy right. of colonialism and where it came from. I mean, I think there's a direct Well, the, the, uh, the idea certainly of weaponizing education. Right, Weapon, uh, right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, but, and the other thing I think just for, the, uh, uh, for people to get a broad sense here to come see you tonight is that this connection between the West Indies mm-hmm. and the funding and expansion of our earliest colleges um, and the, 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 to, to ensure that kind of in some way, one aspect of it, ensuring the children of slaveholders had places to go in this hemisphere that were funded by their own merchants that, that, that were dealing in slaves was part of this, this process. And, and, and that the, 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 this is also part of the intellectual underpinning to justify right. The uh, notions of racism and slavery. 
Yeah, the book is divided. They're all intertwined. They're all intertwined. And the book is divided into two parts. And the first part is uh, I attempt to explain the relationship between colleges and slavery, how how colleges actually got um, so many enslaved people on their campuses. And I'll just give an example. Yeah. Eliezer Wheelock, the founder of Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, arrives in New Hampshire to build his college with eight enslaved people, seven adults and a child, an infant child. Um, And if you do the math on that, that means he actually has more slaves than faculty. He's got more slaves than active trustees. He's actually got more slaves than students, if you do an honest counting of it. The largest population of people on early Dartmouth were, in fact, the enslaved people who were building his campus for him. Um, you know, and so the first part of the book really was an attempt to explain why it was that at the College of Rhode Island, there's some, which is now Brown, there's so many slave traders on the board. Why it is at Columbia, which was then King's College, um, the sons of slave traders, the sons of the merchants dominated the undergraduate classes. Um, and why it was that there were enslaved people on these campuses and at times actually even building these campuses. The second part of the book, I attempt to explain what the con- intellectual consequence of that was the legacy that lives with us even today. Um, And part of it is that slavery embedded in these institutions um, transforms the way that we think about the world Um, and certainly transforms the way that 18th and 19th century intellectuals engaged the world. Um, One of the places you can see that is in the rise of the sciences in the colonial world. Um, And what I did in that part of the book is I traced the students. I just followed them. You know, they went from places like Virginia and Philadelphia and New York, graduates of these early colonial colleges. Um, they went from Jamaica and Barbados, the wealthy sons of planters and slave traders, um, Caribbean and southern planters and northern slave traders. And they went to Europe to study science. They went to Europe to study medicine after college, to places like Scotland. Um, in particular, the, the Americans liked Scotland. Um, but they did go to France. They went to Holland, um, sometimes to England. Um, and they emerge on the other side of the Atlantic as experts on race relations. You know, they, they have intimate relationships with Native Americans and Africans. If you think about Thomas Jefferson's notes on Virginia, mm-hmm. where he speculates broadly on the biological, intellectual, and cultural capacity of, capacities of Native Americans and Africans, um, Jefferson is someone who had throughout his entire life, from his childhood through his adulthood, close contact with Native Americans and Africans. Um, the you know when he was a student at William and Mary, about ten percent of the undergraduate population was actually still Native Americans in the early 1760s, um, and so his his speculations actually have an air of authority about them, and like many American students, like many of the American students who go to Europe for their education, Jefferson doesn't. Um, they arrive in Europe with a and are given assigned a kind of authority over Native Americans and Africans. They begin to actually give lectures on them. Um, lectures on the course of disease among African people, on the um, prevalence of albinism um, among Native Americans. They also write dissertations, um, often on these kinds of topics. They then come back to establish their very first medical schools. And that means that you know Samuel Bard, um, the son of John Bard, a New York surgeon who you know, graduates from um, the American colleges, heads off to Edinburgh to study medicine, comes back to establish the second medical school in North America, the one at Columbia. The first is at Penn. Um, you know, while Bard is actually studying in um, Scotland, his father is buying a large farm on the Hudson River in New York, purchasing slaves and an overseer. When Samuel comes back, he establishes the medical school. He also 
using some of the family money. But he also, in fact, uh, marries the daughter of one of the leading slave traders of New York, the Kruger family. Um, and that becomes, in fact, part of the foundation for this sort of new institution. Yeah, and so it, what I argue in that part of the book is that um, the very way that we think about the world gets transformed by these relationships because ultimately what happens to science um, is science gets placed under the governance of slave traders and slave owners as it gets institutionalized in the academy, as we build medical schools, as we build science programs, as we endow professorships in the sciences. In fact, the money is coming from the slave trade and from planters. And increasingly, in fact, the political will, the political interest of that class of people begin to get expressed through science. And this is so important, I think. When I, I wish I, I, as I told you, I, I forgot the book, but inside of your, <laughs> and I have it on the Kindle here, but it, it, on the margins of the book, I was writing all through this part of your book. One of the things that struck me about this was that, um, A, this, this is part of how the intellectual justification on race and yeah. racism was actually built by Americans, by right. what, people who would become Americans mm -hmm. in our universities and exported out. Right. It wasn't brought to us right. so much as it was exported out. And it also made me think about uh, all the programs we've done on uh, the, the kind of history of uh, racism in medicine, and especially the experiments done on Native people and black people in this country and poor people in America in general by colleges, which, mm -hmm. and until I read your book, I didn't... It, what snapped as I read your book was this is the historical root. This is the, the where the justification for these things, even if it wasn't conscious, right. came from to do these kinds of experiments on people right. in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah. yeah, you have these sort of incredible moments, but this is, in fact, the genesis of that relationship. It's um, the modern sciences, you know, the, the College of Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, um, Columbia Medical School. Um, begin, in fact, with the transfer of the bodies of black people to these new medical staffs, these students who are coming back from Europe right, and want right. to build medical programs. Right? They need corpses. Um, and the colonial governments actually begin transferring corpses to them. Black corpses. Um, yeah, black corpses. And the people who they prey upon are the marginalized people. It's the enslaved, um, the black population, enslaved and free, actually, um, Native Americans and occasionally the Irish. Um, you know, and so it's actually the, the groups who you would actually expe expect to some extent in the colonial world. Um, but this is certainly the genesis of that. This is the beginning of a um, relationship in which science preys upon um, the poor and the oppressed and in the name of progress. Yeah. I, I think that, that one of the reasons I love, I love your book so much is I think that it, if you read this book in the, as, as, as a historical context of who we are to help us struggle and wrestle with what we do, what we do now. Right. We understand where it came from. We can understand how maybe we can change right. where right. we are. Right. I mean, that's important yeah. of yeah. historians like yeah. you taking, bringing that yeah. that world to us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, our, our job is actually to deliver new information um, and to hopefully um, influence the public debate, the public discourse, um, by giving the public more information than it had. Um, and I think absolutely in the discussion about schools, in the discussion about affirmative action, in the discussion about higher education, the direction of the nation. Um, we need more facts. Uh, we need a more intelligent debate. Um, I'm not afraid of any of those debates. I just want them to be intelligent <laughs> debates. No, ex right. no exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and another thing I was thinking about, I think it's important to put out here, um, I, do, I do want to talk about um, Charles Follum. You talk yeah. about him there because yeah. 
because um, there, there was opposition. Mm-hmm. There always is opposition, and that plays a right. critical role yeah. in what happens. And I think it's it's important to remember that at every moment that I'm writing about, you know, every period that I'm writing about in the book, there's opposition. There's opposition to slavery. There's opposition to the slave trade. There's a moral argument against all of these things um, that happens. Um, and sometimes it's nuanced, and fu- sometimes it's not, you know, f- it's not full-chested, um, but, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fallon is actually a, an incredible figure. You know, um, Charles Fallon yeah. is a radical German who gets chased out of Germany under threat of imprisonment um, for participating in radical movements, an academic. Um, he eventually flees. He, he, finds him, he finds his way to Philadelphia. And then under somewhat really quite happenstance, he runs into um, the Marquis de Lafayette, who the um, United States has invited back for the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, General Lafayette, who had fought with the Americans. Right, helped win the American yeah, Revolution. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> he had fought with right. the Americans during right. the American Revolution. And now, you know, 50 years later, after the Declaration, um, he's being brought back for this grand tour. Um, Fallon actually runs into Lafayette in um, Philadelphia. Um, and Lafayette decides to help him. And you know the, what ex- actually happens right there isn't clear, but the next step is he sends um, Fallon, he sends a note to his biographer up at Harvard, who's on the Harvard faculty. And Fallon gets appointed to a professorship in German. Um, he proves quite popular with the students. Um, you can actually follow, I, I followed you know, his lecture notes. Um, and so I actually you know, got to sit and just read through what he was saying to the students. But I also got to sit and see um, what um, the students were getting from it. Um, and the relationship is about it, the same as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but it, it's a kind of fascinating thing to do. And I got to do it several times with 18th and 19th century and some um, 17th century faculty, both in Europe and the U.S. Um, the, but Fallon actually, because of his own politics, gets attracted to the abolitionist movement. Um, he becomes one of the leaders of the uh, Massachusetts Abolitionist Society, eventually the New England Anti-Slavery Society, Massachusetts um, Anti-Slavery Society, um, and eventually gets punished by Harvard. They strip the money from his professorship um, in a meeting of the trustees. And um, George Tickner, who had, uh, the biographer of Fallon, who had actually helped to bring him there, resigns right after this. Fallon is forced to resign. Um, Fallon goes to New York and um, I think with the help of a group of Unitarians, studies with his family for the Unitarian ministry and so, sort of puts his life back together. He's building a church in New England and he's supposed to go back to open the church. I think this is about 1840. Right. Um, and on the ship that's carrying him back to New England, a load of cotton that's on deck is, is loaded too close to a steam pipe and it catches fire. Um, and so slave-grown cotton being moved toward free New England on a ship carrying an abolitionist who's returning basically after Harvard's punishment. Um, the ship catches fire. Um, it, it burns for several hours, and then you know, um, Fallon is killed. Virtually everyone on board is killed. Um, and and th- you're left with this sort of story of what all this means. And I use it as the um, closing chapter of the book, in part because the relationship between cotton um, it's the cotton that actually – Fallon's story is incredible, and it runs through several sections of the book. Yeah. Um, but in this part of the book, I really wanted to focus on the cotton, the thing that causes the ship to catch fire. Um, because, in fact, actually, at the very moment that that ship is catching fire, um, <laughs> slavery is largely gone from the northern states. But cotton is actually driving the northern economy. 
Um, and it's certainly driving the internal politics of these colleges. Um, part of the reaction against Fallon's abolitionism is a reaction of the cotton textile merchants. It's the, you know, it's the families with close ties earlier to slavery and now to cotton manufacturing in New England, um, whose money actually comes from slave-grown cotton in the South and you know, um, manufacturing it and exporting it to Europe. Um, the Northern economy is deeply invested in Southern slavery long after slavery actually ends in the North. It's like almost a, it's that story, the way you put it, when I was thinking about, again, as I was reading that, that, that the, towards the end of the book where you talk about what happened with this, yeah. the, the, book, the ship that went down, it's, this is poetic symmetry about it. <laughs> I think that's yeah. what you're alluding to yeah. here. Yeah. That yeah. I think is very powerful. Well, we, and this is, you know, this is where MIT is. You know, right. MIT is a product of this moment. Right. MIT is a product of the moment of you know, we, the cotton manufacturers of New England, need engineers to build these new cotton manufactories, these larger and larger cotton towns. Um, and there's a scarcity of engineers, so they begin pumping money into engineering schools. Um, and so, you know, Brooklyn Polytechnic, which gets the sugar money um, from, the, um, from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where the big sugar refineries right, are, right. and MIT and, and many of the New England engineering schools, which um, will get money from the wealthy New England cotton manufacturers. But it's all, in fact, the products of slavery. Um, driving the northern economy. Now, you see how fascinating Craig Stephen Wilder's stories are and how fascinating the book Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of, a, of American Universities is. It's an amazing book. I mean, I, amazing book. You will read this book and you will do what I did, which is make just notes on every margin of every page because Thank there's you. so much to think about. Great to have you in the studio. Thank you. Good to meet you in person. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. having me back. Thank you so much. Thank you.